John LeBond here on the 29th of March 2018. This is JLB Chats episode number four. This time the special guest is John Adams of Hoax Bastards Call. And a few days ago, on March 20, 2018, he and I discussed a range of things on the Fakeologist Discord server. At fakeologist.com we discuss apocalypse and the revelation and the idea that maybe we are living in a time where the veil is being lifted. We discussed the book, 1984, by George Orwell. How relevant is that book to our time today, some 60 or 70 years after it was originally published? We discussed the concept of paid shills and boogeymen and these sorts of things. We discussed what I call the war hoax, the nuke hoax, and the history hoax. Those are my words. Uh, you'll hear John put these ideas in his own words in just a moment. So we discuss an awful lot of things. So without any mucking about, let's get straight into the call. And we will pick it up where the call began on the 20th of March, 2018. I hear you good. Excellent. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm fantastic, mate. Tuesday. So it's one of my days off. So... uh it's a funny that you should contact me now because I was just in the middle of making a video for the YouTube channel and I was going to be using part of the, uh, what's that, you know the song Secret Agent Man? Who's that by? Johnny, Johnny, Rivers. Johnny Rivers, right? Johnny Rivers. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I heard a comical rendition of that tune by our mutual friend, Jay Dyer, and I was kind of going to rip off his idea of ripping off that song, but I was going to give him credit, I promise. Oh, that's funny. I've, I've yeah, well, you know, a lot of people truly believe in secret agents, right? Because they've watched all of this TV and all of these movies convincing them that, ooh, the Americans and the Russians and all these countries have all of these spies everywhere, right? Spying on each other, which makes sense until you realize all of the countries are controlled by the same people. So why would you need spies spy you see what i'm trying to say here it doesn't really make sense anymore well uh actually uh i think a while back you and i were going to converse about this at some point remember uh, those posts i put up uh, having to do with secret agents well i probably i probably can't off the top of my head uh, remember them so i apologize for that but um... oh remember I, uh so there were uh cia videos of um like training videos of how to catch uh, <laughs> how to catch spies on your uh, home t- on your home turf, and there were these ridiculous Hollywood productions. Um, and, yeah, they were they were shot like movies, right? So there are these training videos for CIA agents, and they're available on YouTube. Anybody can get them, and the way that they're shot is like a film, like a movie. And it's basically propaganda for the people who would be in these agencies telling them how to, like, tail somebody in a car or how to, um, how to, you know, if you see a suspicious person walking around your neighborhood. And, um, they're, they're really ridiculous videos if they, if they really were used for training purposes, then they're, they're basically the equivalent of watching you know, like a like a dra- like an episode of Dragnet or something like that. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So, what your inference was that these were propaganda videos for the recruits. Yeah, I see. Yeah, and and, I the, see. and 
and, and the, the interesting thing about it is, like like you're saying, which I think you're correct in that regard, is the way that you would even get somebody to be interested in doing that line of work is through movies and entertainment. You would see it glamorized, and, and then even the videos that are training the people are done in a fashion of entertainment. So, so it's all it's all it's all kept within that realm. But yeah, you're right. Absolutely, there's no. Um, well, there's a uh, the the line I always liked from from the uh, the song by the the walls came tumbling down by the band the call. There's a line there that says there are no Russians, there are no tanks, only corporate criminals. Or there are no Russians, there are no Yanks, only corporate criminals playing with tanks. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I'm open-minded, John. I should say I'm open-minded to this possibility that there are, there is some organization sent to to spy or to infiltrate or to discredit. Like, I'm open-minded. You know, I'm open-minded. But it just doesn't make sense to me. And, and here's one of the reasons why. Because if I am correct and dinosaurs and nuclear bombs and heliocentrism are all hoaxes, right? And in theory... Any spies that you sent to spy on this scene, they would have to know all of that. They would have to know about all of the hoaxes before they're sent to spy on us, right? Because if they didn't know and they were suddenly learning about hoaxes from us, they'd almost have to be like a double agents sort of from the get-go, wouldn't they? Like, how could they trust their own authority if their authority didn't tell them about the dinosaur hoax and they learned about it from me? You see what I'm trying to say? Like, it doesn't make sense. They would have to know way more than us. Like, they would have to know about all of the hoaxes, wouldn't they? Like what, well, would they go like, well, like a comprehensive training program where you sort of study hoax after hoax? And maybe they don't, maybe you don't have to do that. Maybe these people are not raised in our regular school system, so you don't have to then deprogram them and teach them about the hoaxes. Maybe they never believed in dinosaurs to begin with. I guess that's possible. They're kind of like superhumans bred for the purpose. I, I, look, I'm open-minded. I just don't see any evidence for this. What I'm trying to say. Well, I think uh, I think for p- particular purposes, I just don't. You know, I don't believe in James Bond. Let's just say that. I think you know the intelligence agencies. That I, I don't. I, I personally don't think they're very much worried about you or me too much. And even if YouTube is pulling videos or pulling down blogs or any of that type of stuff, it's not necessarily because the content is dangerous or anything like that. Like I was uh, saying on the last uh, Hoaxbusters call that, you know, it, you know, Hoaxbusters got pulled down, but there's, like, cooking blogs that have been pulled down. So it, it's it, whatever it is, or, and for whatever reason they're doing it, um, and, and the, there are people employed in those positions to, to kind of monitor content, but... Um, for one, I, I think you would be correct in that regard um, to a certain extent that, the, that there's not much interest in the stuff we're talking about. And then two, um, the the idea that, you know, James Bond or Kim Philby or, uh, you know, who, who you know, any, any one of the master spies of the old times, it, it's all ridiculous nonsense. There There was no... There was no secrets to be stolen or traded or anything like that. In fact, um, the guy who basically admits as much in his book is Peter Wright, the guy who ended up living in uh, Australia, who wrote the book Spycatcher. Well, I'm not familiar with that work. 
So, um, but I take your word for it. And uh, yeah, they could openly admit it, couldn't they? They could openly admit that it's all a ruse. But the masses would prefer to believe the stories on their telescreens, wouldn't they? That's just how it is. That's well, yeah, it is. and yeah, and um, for each for each era, whether it's um, I can't I can't remember how how old are you? Are you thirty? Is that what you said? Yeah, thirty. Yeah, thirty. Okay, so um, I'm just ten years older than you, and for each generation, there's a particular like there's particular like spy entertainment programming, and so you got all the new programming, you got this new fake nonsense that you know of course Russia and America and or you know I guess the rest of the world is against Russia and Russia's bad and evil and they're you know uh, hacking elections and spying on everything. Well, it, there was there was other programming and other spy movies and all that type of stuff that was coming out and all all different uh, eras and the entertainment when it's revolved around spying is perpetual it's something you can always go back to in entertainment and reinforce this myth that there's these super agent uh, spies everywhere and they're um, you know they, they've always got books out that reinforce this type of stuff you know like the oh what you know like the chris kyle guy the sniper He's like the master sniper who had the most kills and whatever. And then he was running that um, he was running that uh, that company that ran the Boston bombing hoax, um, the Craft. And so, so they've got these literal characters who, interestingly enough, that guy ended up they ended up making a movie about that guy, which Clint Eastwood directed. It was called American Sniper, and Bradley Cooper played uh, this uh, character, Chris Kyle. And, I, you know, now that you're bringing this up, it's interesting because they've got all of this media and entertainment that goes along to reinforce it, but it's particular for the generation. So, like, now you've got the new movie coming out, Red Sparrow, right? And it just so happens to, like, you know, be in production and then be put out just in time for the heating up of the, con- you know, the conflict between uh, Russia and the rest of the world. The entertainment always just happens to come out at the right time. Isn't that interesting? Well, I think you're right about the generational thing. You know, they even have um, secret agent books, children's books, you know, picture books for children when they they can't really read many words, so you get them into reading with picture books. There is a children's picture book series about super agents, and the leading character is a super agent, right? And I've posted a link to one of the images in the live stream chat. You're not going to believe the name of the super agent. He's super agent John LeBon. Oh, my gosh. Would you believe this? Super agent John LeBon is a children's picture book about super agent. Goodness gracious me. What? Well, that's obvious proof you're a shill, John. Well, I would think so. I would think this is case closed, personally. Only one little problem, this book came out after I started doing this work online. So then you have to think, and this guy is based in um, Canada, in like the French part of Canada, you have to think, okay, it could be a coincidence that he just came up with the name John LeBon, but, but it's also possible, hypothetically, that he saw my name somewhere, or my obviously my stage name somewhere, and then he's just removed the H and ripped it off, right? 
Now, I'm not saying that's what did happen. I think he probably came up with this organically. But if that's yeah. the case, and it's a pretty amazing coincidence to me personally, and it's like... The brain, the brain of the apocalypse. Well, that's the title of the first book because there's like six or seven... I don't know how many books there are now. And the first uh, episode is called The Brain of the Apocalypse. And, of course, apocalypse, if you look into the etymology of apocalypse, what does apocalypse really mean? It means, uh, well, it means to remove the covering from something. That's right. And then, yeah. But, but it, all, it, also come, it also translates from Calypso, the goddess Calypso who kept uh, Odysseus on the, on the uh, islands in the Aegean Sea. So, yeah. Covered him up. That's why she was covering him. There you go. So, apocalypse from the Greek apocalypsis, literally meaning an uncovering. So, a lot of us growing up, we have this impression of the apocalypse as this time of uh, doom or disaster or fire or brimstone or these kinds of things. But it just means an uncovering, like a lifting of the veil. And what is it that people like me, and I imagine people like you as well, what is it that we're trying to do? with our research and our content production, we're trying to uncover the truth, aren't we? We're trying to lift the veil for ourselves and hopefully for others as well. It's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, when you think about it that way? Like, is the apocalypse true. such a bad thing? Now, if it said... Now, if they came out with um, an issue of this super agent John LeBon in the, in, the, in the series and the book was called... Oh, wait. You're listening to another hour of Fakeologist Audio Chat on Fakeologist.com. You're listening to another hour of Fakeologist Audio Chat on Fakeologist.com. I like your Alex Jones a lot more than I like your Aberato. I tried to do an Aberato <laughs> impression once. I couldn't do it. He's got a... Yeah, I can't. I need to work on it. You know what I mean? But I've been listening to your show, Hoaxbusters Call, lately. Some of the impressions have been sensational, man. Someone called in doing a um, Yarn Irvin. And, and look, I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself, but he's like, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I can't do it. But this guy, he had it um, almost down to a T. And it's funny, we live in such a small little world in this, you know, what do you call it? I call it the Axe Realm, Alternative Conspiracy Truth. You can call it whatever you want. This little corner of the internet that we're in, it's actually a very small little pond, you know. We all know Jan Irvin, we all know Jay Dyer, right? We we all know Dave McGowan. We all know these names. There's not really that many people, is there, here? No, not at all. No. Um yeah that yeah but yeah that's that's funny you said that because uh I, I told I told uh I told my friend that you liked his impression and he said uh you know he'll, he'll work he'll work out some other some other ones the, the way the way that you actually uh get to do uh impre- and I know you know this too cuz uh like you said you like to do impressions too is uh is you actually have to be a fan of a person for a while before you can uh, nail their impression so that's like I said my friend my friend was an avid listener of Jan Irvin for a long time so. I was too I was back in 2016 I got into Jan Irvin's work through, uh, I'm not really sure how, but I started going through his back catalogue to do with the Trivium and like his interview with uh, Gino Denning, I think his name is, and these sorts of things, and I liked it. And also some of his stuff on, you know, the counterculture, which wasn't really the counterculture, these sorts of things. So there was stuff there I liked. These days, 
I kind of feel like I've gone past it. But that's that's just part of the journey, isn't it? You know, you'll find people who are covering things that you find useful. Eventually, you know, hopefully you outgrow it and, um, and you sort of look back with gratitude but without any reference, if I can put it like that. Yeah, sure. I understand. What I was going to say before the commercial came on is if I would be a little suspicious of this uh, super agent John LeBon if one of the uh, books came out and it was called John LeBon super agent dinosaurs are a hoax <laughs> well <laughs> what if i told you that they have released an issue with a title similar to that would you oh, believe really? me let's uh, let's go through I, let's go through some of the titles here super agent john lebon's some of the titles in and of themselves are a little bit for me it's, it's beyond a coincidence like what is a coincidence do you know what i mean this idea of coincidence versus synchronicity yeah. For me for me that area of inquiry, that field of inquiry, is fascinating in and of itself. And I think it is instructive or it's informative for those of us in this scene where we might see something in a film and think, Oh, that's the truth in plain sight or that's um, predictive programming, which it might be. Maybe there are other explanations for these things. I think when I first got into this, I was too easily sucked into the idea of, oh well, if there's something in a movie that mirrors what happens later on, then that is predictive programming. That is a human being has decided either to mock us or to warn us or to um, expel their karmic uh, guilt or whatever the story is. This is a human who has intentionally done this. This is what it is. Whereas now I'm a bit more circumspect. I think, well, that is one explanation. Maybe there are other almost almost cosmic explanations if I can just put it in those sort of couched terms. So if we go through sure. some of these um, I agree. John LeBon uh, titles, right, like they're almost, I mean, these, this is a children's book, but look, like this isn't, oh, secret agent and the enemy bad guys in a foreign land, right? Like John LeBon and the ultimate symbol, right, the ultimate symbol. Well, if I asked you in our little circles, what is the ultimate symbol? I think a lot of people, if they thought about it, they would say the eye of providence, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how many of us can actually explain why the hell that's on a dollar bill? How many of us can explain that? I can't give you a good explanation why. John LeBon and Formula V, right? Formula V, which makes me think of V for Vendetta, which was written by Alan Moore. And I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Moore's work, but he also did Watchmen. And if you want to talk about truth in plain sight, I think that guy, oh, it's, they're just comic books. Who cares? They're just comic books. Well, if that's your attitude, you're going to miss out because if there is such thing as truth in plain sight, that guy nails it, you know. And he's in a, supposedly an occultist and a magician and these kinds of things, right? John LeBon and the travel fridge. If you look into the official story of the film Back to the Future, supposedly before the DeLorean, they were going to use a fridge as the time travel mechanism, supposedly. Believe that whether or not you want to, but that is supposedly the official story of the script development of that film. And, of course, the amount of sinks between Back to the Future and 9-11, they're through the roof, right? Now, you could say, oh, well, JLB, this is just you projecting all of your... And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what we do, isn't it? We project what we know, trying to find meaning in things. So this is kind of me projecting my meaning onto these terms, but that's what we do. All of these things are subjective, in my opinion. John LeBon, Agent John LeBon, and a sheep in the head. A sheep in the head, right? Now, when I think of a sheep in the head, I think of 
uh, do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which was the book that was the forerunner to Blade Runner, which is, which is another film that I think there's, there's some messages in there about, you know, oh, you've got a human. It isn't a human, it's a robot, but it thinks it's a human. Well, how many humans do we mix with who, if we just analyse their behaviour, are completely programmed, just like a robot? There's no actual evidence of genuine critical thought in most of these creatures. They're just programmed just like robots. Yeah, I don't know, man. Very interesting. Very interesting stuff. But no, as far as I'm aware, no dinosaurs yet, but it's probably only a matter of time, really. Yeah. You know, that's funny you said that uh, Back to the Future uh, with the fridge, you know, they were going to use the fridge, and then they ended up in um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure using the telephone booth, which is kind of a similar thing as the time travel machine. Well, you know, I haven't seen that one. Let me see what year that came out. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, 1989. 1989, yeah. I want to start Keanu Reeves, who, of course, would go on to star as the one in The Matrix. Yes. And George Carlin as Rufus. I'm going to have right. to download this film, I think. Yeah, yeah, there, there's a... <laughs> yeah, there's some funny stuff in there. What's your opinion on George Carlin? Like, you know how some people are like, oh, Bill Hicks and George Carlin, they were sort of anti-establishment comedians telling us the truth. I actually used to believe that. Not anymore. Before I tell you what I think, what do you think? Um, I've re-examined their comedy in more recent times. And it's like I say, but I I, I like stand-up comedy. I've been a fan of comedy for a good portion of my life. But, you know, Bill Hicks' comedy pretty you know, he's got some good stuff in there, but he falls flat like half the time. And as far as the truth being kind of spilled through comedians, I came to the conclusion quite a while ago that comedians were the court jesters, you know, the steam valve for the majority of the public. And George Carlin um, was that way for a good long time. I think one of the first things I thought of uh, when I came to this conclusion was that George Carlin had an HBO special every year for since the late 1990s. So, you know, if he was really, you know, doing any damage of any sort, they wouldn't have allowed him to be on HBO, obviously, right? And um, I think the way that it's easy to kind of display some sort of uh you know, some sort of, I, I guess, speak kind of uh, things that would be common sense type truth, something like George Carlin or Bill Hicks would, would do, it has to be couched within a right-left paradigm. So, you know, George Carlin and both Bill Hicks would you know, liberals within that. So it would be safe within that realm, but if if they were to kind of break that right-left paradigm, then it wouldn't it, it wouldn't be so easy in that regard. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, why would you put... If somebody is genuinely anti-establishment, why would they be getting specials through the establishment telescreen transmissions? It doesn't make sense, does it? Yeah, I think I think a long time ago, Marcus Allen made a great point on one of the calls. He said that... Uh, he pointed out that George Carlin wears like a $50,000 watch something or something like that. <laughs> So, you know, for for a guy who's talking, you know, who's supposedly, you know, giving comedy to the little people, you know, they just want to take your money. 
you know, that that type of stuff. Comedy for the little people. Yeah, and it's also very negative. Like, that's a good example of it. It's like, you know, they own you. They own you. It's like, well... They don't care about I don't you. That. They don't give a fuck about you. Exactly, yeah. That's the same bit, right? And it's like, to an extent, there's truth in that. Why would a wealthy person who's never met you care about you? Of course they wouldn't. But does it follow from that that they're in any way nefarious or um, or that they own you? Because if you if you get into the mindset that somebody else owns you or is your master, then in a way they are, right? So if you get the court jester, to use your terminology, convincing the learning masses, oh, they own you, well, he's not actually going against that idea of like uh, mental slavery. He's actually helping propagate it. If you take a step back and think about it, like a man who is convinced that the people at the top are his masters, well, they are his masters now because that's his mind. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. And I also think if you go back into, and I'm not not uh, bringing this up to um, have a debate on history or anything, so don't think I'm going that route. I, I'm enjoying the discussion as it's flowing. But if you were to go back and look at the, given the history that we're given as to how allegedly kings interacted with their court jesters, a court jester was the only one who was allowed to tell the king the absolute truth, right? So, in, in you know, in in the histories we're given, a, a court jester could speak absolute truth to a king without fear of being you know killed or beheaded or whatever, and he could speak absolute truth to the court. And so, so like I said, the that idea in the modern day is the in, in mass media mass culture is is the stand-up comedian and pe- people me and you and everybody else or you know the people who um who engage in this entertainment and mass culture media without thinking about it their steam valves come in the form of the politicians they believe in or the comedians who are up there taking a stand against uh, the men and that's how they're relieved just like in sports you know sports relieves you of uh, the idea that you would actually have to go out and engage in some form of physical contact (laughs) you know those type of things yeah i see what you mean so you're sort of i guess repeating the story of the court jester as like a parable of uh, the modern world yeah, absolutely. The it, it worked in it worked in the old times. I I don't you know at least in the history that we're given. So I don't see why it wouldn't work in the, in the modern times, just in a more mass media type form. Which yeah, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm happy just to have a conversation. So I don't want to um, make you feel compelled to discuss anything you don't want to discuss. But I would be interested to get your take on this idea that maybe history doesn't go back anywhere near as far as we're led to believe. It doesn't mean there's no value in knowing the official story. Like, maybe the official history has a a value separate from its actual truth. So it's not to diminish necessarily the the value of knowing the history. But in terms of what we can actually verify with primary source documents, I'm being quite serious when I say, I don't think it goes back more than a couple hundred years, from what I can tell. And I've spent a lot of time checking. I'm talking ancient Greece, ancient China, ancient Egypt, ancient Rome, the whole lot, if you try and trace the primary sources, it all ends at a, like a, a big brick wall a couple hundred years ago, has been my experience. And I know some people 
They really hate hearing me say that. And it's like, guys, I could be wrong. Just show me the primary sources that you found. That'll change my mind. That's all I'm looking for here. And so far, no one's been able to do it. Nobody. And there's lots yeah. of people out there who would love nothing more than to shut me up. And I would love nothing more than for them to shut me up too if they've got the primary sources. No one... I don't think anyone's double-checking this stuff, man. I don't think anyone is double-checking it. Right. I understand uh, what you're saying. I've heard you say this uh, before, and I don't totally disagree with you um, in that regard. Um, now, my now, here, here's where I think people tend to misunderstand you, and this might be the thing, is because... Like, me personally, I don't like to get into arguments. I don't really like to debate people. So um, I, I know I know that people, you know, may think it's fun to hear people debate. It, it's not it's not it's not uh, fun for me to do that. So um, uh, in the, the thing the thing that I would think about or I guess the question I would ask you is because I would tend to agree that we can't prove that there is even ancient history. That's that's unprovable. But in my mind, there's other people who who say that it's it's just because it's unprovable to be able to prove how you know that ancient Egypt allegedly existed you know five thousand years ago or whatever that that means that ancient Egypt didn't exist at all, right? Now I'm just using that particular culture because that's the one that people tend to go. They say, oh, you know, the pyramids are only 100 years old, and, and the entire history of it was faked, and the entire history of, you know, the, the ancient Roman ruins are faked, and they were all built by Jesuit priests and this type of stuff. I, I don't know that that, that that isn't true, but because I've, I've studied a lot of Roman history or Egyptian history, there's a lot of intricate details in things like this, so it makes it hard for me to believe that those cultures didn't exist, but I'm into the idea that they're not as old as we think we are. We think that. Yeah, I think I understand what you're saying. So I can see why people would conflate what I'm saying. If I say, guys, I've looked for the primary sources, for instance, for Herodotus, right, who is supposed to be the history, the, the father of history, the grandfather yes. of the study of history. If I say to people, look, I have searched for the primary sources for this guy, there are none. There is no extant work from his time. And the secondary sources that are available to us only go back a couple hundred years, and let me show you, let me show you, let's just take the, the University of Chicago for one example. Let's look at their page on Herodotus. Look at all of their references. Now let's trace the sources of each of those references. Look, the oldest we've got is a couple hundred years, right? If I do that, that doesn't prove that Herodotus didn't exist. It doesn't prove that, um, that the time period doesn't exist. Like it doesn't, how could you prove such a thing? So I can see why people would assume that's what I'm trying to do. But actually, what I'm just trying to explain is that we have all of these ideas and beliefs and images in our mind about these characters from ancient history. But if we take the time to look for the sources, the actual sources, the best we'll come up with is a couple hundred years old, right? The textbooks that we're learning from at school are all printed in, what, the last 5, 10, 20, 30 years? In fact, they're always updating the history textbooks for some reason, right? So most of us will never take the time to check the sources of the textbooks. But if we do that, and it can't go back more than a couple hundred years, I think that is a huge red flag. I think that's a gigantic red flag. And I can't believe more people aren't talking about it. I agree it's a red flag. And, um, yeah, I've, I've heard this before, um, not, not, um, not only from you, but 
uh, similar things that you said. I think you put it in a more kind of broken down, easy to understand type fashion. Um, but, you know, um, the idea that the Dark Ages was, was invented to give an extra amount of time to, to pretend that um, uh, my good buddy Chris Kendall's brought this up before is that it, it, it would extend some sort of validity to the evolution theory because it would, um, and people will say like, oh, well, you know, that idea came before evolution, right? But that's not necessarily true because in the so-called enlightenment, you already have this kind of, and I'm not saying this because I'm, I'm, a, real, I'm a religious person, I'm not a religious person, but I'm, I'm using the an objective kind of viewpoint to point out that these are dialectics that they bounce back and forth between. So when the Enlightenment came in, it was basically the time period to start dismantling the religious idea. And so you invent this kind of extra time period to give this kind of validity that, oh, we're, you know, one, the Earth's a billion years old and it took this long to create dinosaurs. And then man was evolved over this long period of time. And, you know, there's, you know, uh, these elite families, the, you know, Darmans, the Wedgwoods, and the Huxleys, who all kind of control this type of this information. And they're all better than us, even though they've got, you know, horse faces and buck teeth. But, um, but you know, somehow they're all better. So, so they, they kind of invent this whole kind of extra time to give validity to this idea of their theory of evolution. And basically it's this dismantling of religion. And the new religion is kind of created, but uh, in the process, you you know make thousands or millions and millions of years old. Whereas in the religious belief, it's only a thousand or so. Uh, it's only thousands of years old, right? So it's just kind of doing away with the old, uh, the old myths and bringing in the new myth. Well, with the dark ages, like you say, that maybe they've added the dark ages. When I hear people say that, it sounds like they're implying that there was an ancient history, then this extra time was added, and now there's today. So today is closer to the ancient history, and the Dark Ages were added to extend the time between the two. Whereas what I'm saying is that maybe that ancient history never actually did happen. I'm suggesting that as a possibility, like maybe there was no Plato, maybe there was no Socrates, maybe there was no Herodotus, maybe there was no Strabo, maybe there was no Julius Caesar. And this is very uh, confronting. This is very daunting for a lot of people to to hear this. And I'm not trying to convince anyone. I'm I'm still, like I said, hoping someone will find a primary source and point it out to me. It should be easy. We live in a time of digital communication. We've got the Internet Archive now. They're copying so many books to PDF. You know, books that you and I would have to travel to a you know the University of uh, Cambridge or Oxford because it's in their rare books collection. Well, these things are being digitised and documented. So it really should be fairly easy. If there's an extant primary source from these characters, it should be easy to track down. You know? Sure. sure I so so I'm, not, I'm not trying to... Um, the one, the one thing I was just going to say in that regard was when I said uh, they were getting rid of an old myth and kind of uh, bringing in a new myth, the old myth was that, you know, could possibly be Part of the old myth is that the Earth is thousands and thousands of years old, whereas the myth that replaced it was the Earth is billions of years old, right? So, um, yeah, I, I wasn't necessarily uh, taking that uh, stance. That I see, what, I see what you're saying. You, you were um, 
most people who believe that the Dark Ages was invented, they still believe that the Earth, the Earth is thousands and thousands of years old and that the pyramids have been there for five or ten thousand years, something ridiculous. Yeah, and that, you know, the ancient Greeks, that's where democracy was born, right? This is what we're taught in school <laughs> and in university. We're taught that democracy comes from the ancient Greeks and you had the Athenians who helped pioneer this idea that certain people should be allowed to vote and to help dictate the direction of society. And this is how, you know, eventually it led to modern-day democracy. But it's like, well, hold on a second. I know full well that the elections are a joke. And I would have thought most people in this realm are fully aware that the elections are a joke. Donald Trump is a clown. Hillary Clinton is a clown. Ron Paul is a clown. These people are clowns. Okay, we're not, we're not, we're not voting for the direction of the future at all. This is ridiculous, right? And so this idea that uh, democracy goes back to ancient Greece, well, that's a nice myth to tell people when you're also telling them another myth. Hey, little boys and girls, you get to vote when you turn 18. You get to vote. In fact, we're going to get you ready for it by having practice elections in class because you're lucky to live in a democracy. Well, where does that myth of democracy come from? It goes back to ancient Greece, doesn't it? Where you've got these beautiful people sitting around eating grapes, philosophizing, yeah? Maybe these are all just stories, guys. How is that so hard to get people's heads around? Yeah, and the, 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 the addition of time adds validity to something to most people so if you say like you know if you're if you're saying what you just said there you you say well there was this once there was this golden age it's it's golden age thinking have you ever heard of that term yeah the good times back in the past right that, that's right so back way way back then john it was you know you know three thousand years ago way back then they had it down back then they were sitting with you know, they were lounging between two pillars of ivory eating grapes, right? And um and uh like you said, sitting on Mount Mount Olymp Mount Olympus and uh in the and in the uh Acropolis and you know, uh, just just thinking about things all day long. Um uh back when uh you, you know, you were able to uh when men were able to afford to be able to do this type of stuff. But see now we have to fight for our democracy, you see. So, and we have to fight to get back to those old good times. It's always a struggle to get back what once was. That's kind of the carrot that's dangled out in front of everybody. Is that at one time it was it was really good. Um, I'm sure even in Australia they have some sort of kind of uh, cultural programming along those lines. Um, they definitely have it here in America. And, and, you know, like you're saying, the worldwide kind of global programming, well, you know, democracy was invented in way, way back then. And like I said, the addition of time adds validity to something, making it uh, in the minds of people kind of, you know, kind of structurally, it's cemented. And that's, that's kind of an interesting, uh, cemented in the minds of people uh, uh, it kind of goes along with the idea of being set in stone. There's all these kind of references to um, the stone and cement and all that type of stuff because it's it's true. It's it's true that people do lock on to things kind of like stone or rock or cement, especially ideas. Well, I think you touch on an important point there. Most people seem to believe that either the future is going to be golden, these are people who believe in... You know, multiculturalism and gender equality and 
you know, we're getting there. This is progress. We're getting towards a good, a good time. People who are against that, in their mind, there's generally a golden age in the past, whether that was the 1950s and the uh, supposed social order of the time, or that was before the Jews took over. There was some golden period and those, those dastard Jews took over, right? And they ruined everything. All the Jesuits of the Vatican, whoever they think the boogeyman is. So there was some golden time before everything went to shit. Or it was the ancient uh, philosophers, those great wise men who pioneered. Whatever it is, they've got a golden time in their mind. It's either in the future or it's in the past. It's generally one of the two, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. And um, some, something that was, was recently re-brought to my mind, um, I was doing a talk uh, was doing a talk with uh, Tim Kelly the other day, and um, one of the things that they did was uh, when they were getting the aerospace workers to kind of build all the airplanes out in, uh, during World War II was the promise of the future. So in, in culture just in general, uh, like you're saying, and, the, and like I was saying, that, that's a, a great point you're bringing up, is it's either the future or the past that you have to get to, is, is um, the, the promise of the future is always perpetual. It's, it's like a perpetual promise that never actually comes into being. And, um, and it's funny because the things uh, that people, like, like you're saying, with, the, with all of the, uh, you know, with all the night, uh, with the pleasantries and the ideas of the, you know, of multi-culti and all that type of stuff, which not against uh, the idea of people all living together in harmony and all that type of stuff, but when it's promised by uh, the news media and the establishment, and all that type of stuff, then they really don't care about it. They they couldn't care less if you liked your your black neighbor or not. They don't they don't care about that. So, but the, it's it's um it's the work that you're doing today is going to affect the future tomorrow. So that's how they get that's how they get people to do things and participate in all of this nonsense. Is you know um one thing being a parent um is they love to scare parents with the with the idea that if you don't do something today, it's going to ruin the world of tomorrow for your children. And uh, that always makes me laugh. That gives me a good belly laugh. Well, it's the same. It's the same idea, isn't it? If you want to control people's behavior, you've got to control their mind. And how do you do that? You give them something in the future to either fear or to want. So if you do this, you will get this. If you don't do this, this will happen to you. Either way, implant an idea in their mind of a future and that will get them to behave in a certain way. And so if you can do that, you're getting them to take attention away from right now. So we see this on the micro level and the macro level. On the personal level and the social level, most people's attention seems to be anywhere but right now, doesn't it? They're hoping for a return to a previous time. Or they're looking forward to a transition to a new time. How many people yes. are really focused on right now? Oh, well, I'll, yeah. I'll worry about right now later. For now, I'm worried about tomorrow. Or I'm busy regretting yesterday. I'll yeah. worry about today another time. That is true. And I just, you know, based on what people have uh, said in the media or in politicians or any of that type of stuff, uh, portions of the West Coast were supposed to be uh, totally underwater by now. <laughs> 
Here's one thing to try. I don't know how old your children are. I suspect they're still fairly young. But if you speak to people who are sort of teenage, say 15, 16, 17, this is something I recommend all listeners give a try. Just ask a vox pop of a, of a teenager, you know, global warming, how much do you think water levels have risen? Right? Ask them, you know about global warming, they all know about it, or they call it climate change or whatever. How much do you think the, the water levels have risen? And, uh, and listen to the kinds of responses that you get. A lot yeah. of these children fully believe that the water levels are already rising significantly, which, of course, is not even the official story. The official story no. is that they've risen by, what, a couple of millimetres in the last so many years. Like, and even if you believe those stories, which I don't, but even if you believe those, those are not anywhere near as catastrophic as what a lot of these children seem to believe. It's almost like they've been conditioned with images, like apocalyptic images, but apocalypse in the, in the general sense, not the sense that we were talking earlier, they actually have no idea what's going on. No. And in their mind, it's a lot worse. It's phenomenal. No, that, that, that's one of the things that I, I have noticed in the past 15 years is that people, unfortunately, they're void of any philosophy. And they don't, they, and even if they believe in some philosophy, whatever it may be, right, left, Republican, Democrat, uh, atheist, religious, whatever it is, they have contradict. They have contradictions that they believe in, and they don't even know it. They're not even aware of it. So say someone like yourself or myself, um, uh, whether people agree with you about something or disagree with me about something, you can at least be assured that someone like myself or John, and I think I, th- think I speak for both of us, is if i'm con- if i'm contradicting myself on something i would like to know about it and i would like to try to change it i would like to try to get to the bottom of it and um most people are not even cognitively aware enough to even have a thought like that much less know that the philosophy that they b- believe that they think they believe in is contradicting itself because i know people out there who are adamant about certain philosophies and they and then they have other beliefs that would totally contradict that particular philosophy and i mean whatever that's all fine and good if it that, that's kind of how the world the world kind of fails forward in a certain sense but um yeah, a lot of people unfortunately don't don't know anything for the most part yeah i agree let me give you an example let me give you an example Supposedly, Trump is kind of like a Nazi, right? Oh, he's a bit of a Nazi. He's a scary right-winger, potential fascist, whatever. Oh, and by the way, Americans should give up their guns. Uh, guys, just think through this one. If Hitler, if Trump is half as bad as some of these people seem to believe, isn't he exactly the kind of person who the people should be armed just in case? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. How can you simultaneously say that your leader is a far-right extremist? How can you simultaneously make that, that, make that case, make that claim, and say that Americans should have less gun liberties. The two don't make any sense when put together. But the same people are parroting both at the same time. No, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I, uh, this is something Chris, and I, Chris Kendall and I have pointed out in the past. And I've heard other places like uh, No Agenda point this out, is say someone like George Bush or you know, Obama or who, whoever it is, whoever the puppet is at the time, they're either, for for the most part, whichever side is opposing it, whether it's the right-wingers with the liberal or the left-wingers 
listeners with a with a conservative, they can never decide whether somebody is an evil genius or a total idiot. Yep. So so George Bush, to the left, would always sit once out of one side of their mouth. They would say he's a total bumbling fool, an idiot, and then uh, the other side of their mouth, he's a crafty evil genius who's you know omnipotent and. Um, that's the paradigm for most people not knowing that they are, you know, just in the Orwellian fashion, they're simultaneously believing two contradicting things at the same time. When we know that uh, in our circles that George Bush is nothing but an actor playing a role, and um, if you were to go look at his early, early speeches before he even became president, he was coherent, he was vibrant, and he was giving speeches like a normal person, and then all all of a sudden he gets into this president's role where he's supposed to be playing this bumbling fool and he can't keep a sentence together. Yep, 100%. George Orwell calls it double think, and he explains it. It's like if you give people contradictory beliefs and get them to believe both at the same time, and they will just pick whichever one fits in with their paradigm whenever it's challenged. That's right. Yeah, that's I believe it's to the fact that they're being contradictory. And, uh, yeah, George Orwell... I'm, I'm assuming that you've read 1984. You're a very well-read person. You've read way more books than me, apparently. So I'm, I'm imagining that you've read 1984, right? Uh, many times, yes. What and do you make of that interrogation scene with O'Brien? Because here's one of the problems I have. I meet a lot of people who seem to want to believe that they're familiar with Orwell, but it's pretty clear to me they haven't actually read the book. Or if they have read it, they were just flipping through it for something to do. They weren't really trying to study what Orwell was saying or think about what Orwell was saying. That scene where O'Brien interrogates Winston, there's that little dialogue where he's like, um, "We control." I'm paraphrasing. We control everything, Winston. We've always controlled everything. And then Winston says, and again I'm paraphrasing, "But what about the bones? How about the all of the creatures that were here before you guys got here?" And yes, then, the yeah, and then yeah, well, he doesn't use the word dinosaur. No, he I think he, he uses he the word reptile. Yeah. yeah, and of course, back then, people thought dinosaurs were reptiles. These days, the story is that they're birds, because the story keeps changing, yeah. of course. But back then, reptiles, the analogy to, uh, to dinosaurs was pretty clear. And then O'Brien says to Winston, who do you think put those bones there, Winston? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Almost like a smart aleck remark, like, Winston, just think about this for a second. Who do you think put those bones there? He even says, those are invention of 19th century biologists. In other words, biologists from the 1800s. Now, when did dinosaurs become a thing? In the yeah. 1800s. So it's, they're yes. spelling it out for us right there, aren't they? Well, I think they are anyhow. I think Orwell, yeah. whether he's one person or a front man for a group, whatever he is, spelling it out. And then what I want to know is why do people assume that they're doing this to mock us? Isn't it also possible they're just putting the clues there for those with eyes to see? Isn't that also a possibility? I don't know. I don't know. I at th- at this point, when it comes to something like that, I would cordially disagree with that um, idea that you put out there, and I I don't mean that in a mean way at at all. So don't take that um, so don't take that uh, to be a disagreement in a um, in a bad way. I just I don't know if that would be the case, but I don't also know, and and anybody can go back and listen to any hoaxbusters calls. I. I I've never thought about it uh, particularly trying to mock us either. So um, as far as um, clues being put out there for the particular purpose for someone like myself to find it, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I, 
at this point in my life, I don't think that's the case. But I also don't think it's it's kind of a I don't think it's necessarily mocking in, in the way that we would think it were to be either. I think um, that someone like Orwell, I think it would kind of go back to the court jester type thing um, because Orwell was uneaten. You know, he went to London school, so and he was a part of the generation that was referred to as the children of the sun. They were basically the hippies of the nineteen you know, of the post World War One period. Um, free love and all that type of stuff was all tried out beforehand. H.G. Wells and D.H. Lawrence and all those people. Um, so that particular generation, you know, once you come up to the time period where nineteen uh, eighty four is written. Um, I've talked about this in, in regard to that particular piece of work. 1984 is only relevant to the time period it was written. And and even though there are pieces of that work that resonate with later generations, it really was written for the baby boomer generation. And there are certain passages and lines in that in that work that uh, lead me to believe that 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 it really has no relevancy beyond the beyond um, the 50s and 60s. And really, you I don't think, think the, you don't think the narratives and some of the themes are relevant, sort of throughout the history of of civilization. Well, I, I think there are lots of pieces of work out there, whether it's uh, you know Thomas More's Utopia or something like that, that you could necessarily read. Uh, which we can definitely, which we can agree on, um, that there is a possibility that uh, Thomas More's Utopia wasn't necessarily written in the time period when it was supposed to be written. Um, but whatever it is, the cultural relevancy and the particular time period that it, that it was written in, and I could probably say, um, even though you, um, well, I get, I guess, because I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the things that you talk about, John. So. Um, uh, I guess 1948 or 47 would be a post-war time period, so we we could agree that uh, we think 1984 was written uh, in the year that they claim it was. Yeah, like for the sake of argument, let's say it was written in that sort of post-war period, mm-hmm. the late 1940s. Yeah, because sure. you 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 tend to say sometimes, I'm not doing this to call you out. Don't 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 take that the wrong way. I'm just saying that I've heard you say that. For the most part, anything prior to World War II, we can't really prove, right? I'm not sure I've said that. I think it, like, even something as simple as how do you prove something, this is a question of epistemology, isn't it? No, this is a question okay. of how do you know something. So how, how could I prove or disprove something from a time that isn't real, okay? There is no hundred years ago that we can go and visit to check with our own eyes. There's no empirical evidence that you and I have access to of the past. And this is just a fact of nature. Even mm-hmm. if 100 years ago did happen, mm-hmm. you and I have no direct experience. All we can do is make inferences from the available evidence. So I, if I've ever said would, that you can't prove what happened before World War II, I don't think I have said that. But if I have said that, then I wasn't conveying what I'm trying to say. That's, not my, that's not my position. And if somebody said to me, when was uh, 1984 written? I would say the late 1940s is what I would say. Right. So um, in 1984, book it's um, the there, there are universal truths in there that he's using 
to convey to the generation that was born, if you look at the time period, 1947, around, around that time period, is part, especially the year 1947, which interestingly enough is the same year the CIA was born, but 19, 1947 is the pinnacle year for the baby boomers because by the time 1967 rolls around, they would be 20, and it's the summer of love, right? Um, so they're you know th these are people who are just going to uh, just going to, you know they're in college, they're at the at that particular time period, and, and um, a lot of people who were um, you know, involved in this mindset of that generation would have read 1984. In fact, uh, at my high school, way back in 1994, um, you read Animal Farm in 1984 in English class. Uh, that's where I first uh, read those books, um, even though I didn't understand them the way that I understand them now at the time. But um, but I think just because of the of the particular uh, situations that Winston is put in. Um, whether it be the sexual situations uh, or or the um, uh, the particular things like the you know the freedom of kind of the freedom of the press and the freedom of the speech type stuff, to me that seems like a cultural milieu from from the time. And even though there's universal truths in it that may uh, be able to speak to different time periods, and people may be able to grasp those ideas because. Uh, down through history, we've just seen kind of the same thing over and over again. People can all, you know, people thought uh, 1984 applied to the to the Nixon presidency, and then people thought it applied to the Reagan presidency, and then they thought it applied to the Clinton presidency and and Bush and so on and so forth. And I've noticed this um, that down through the presidents, there's always articles that come out at the time in mainstream papers that will talk about the parallels between the presidencies and 1984. And they'll say, are we, you know, it'll be like a Washington Post article, and it'll be like, are we living in 1984? And so those things can always transcend to kind of point out, you know, the so-called freedoms that you're losing under, so, you know, so-called president. But the book itself seems to be relevant only to the uh culture that grew up during its uh, writing, you know, post the post-writing period. Hmm, that's an interesting perspective. I haven't really heard yeah. people try and argue that before. It's funny that we should have this discussion right now because yesterday I was watching a video with an interview of Alan Moore, and he's the author of, like I mentioned, Watchmen and Beef of Vendetta. And he said sure. something that I thought was, that most people understood, when a writer uses... The future, when they use their setting for their story as a so-called dystopian future, they're simply using that as a vehicle to talk about the problems or just the issues that they see today. But by, and I'm paraphrasing Alan Moore's words here, but by publishing it in a future scenario, it allows you to play with what's happening. Like if you try and write about today, there are things that we know about today. It makes it harder to engage with the story. So you set it in the future, but you're still talking about human nature as we see it today. And I think a lot of what George Orwell is writing about in that book is human nature. That, yes. you know, human nature, maybe human nature doesn't really change so much. Probably not. And I, I would definitely agree uh, with uh, what you're saying Alan Moore said. And I pointed something similar out, um, but 
not in particularly with the future, but actually with the past. And um, in a couple of different talks, I've talked about how the past has been used as a vehicle to make people believe something is okay. When um, So when you see something in a movie and it's taking place in the 1950s and um, they give you this kind of uh, entertainment mass media version of what the 1950s was like, they're, they're able to slip in like modern um, memes and ideas into it. and then you as the viewer kind of subconsciously soak this in as, oh, well, they were doing this back then, so it must be okay now kind of thing. And though I, I just take this from empirical evidence because me as a child growing up in the 1980s was slammed with tons and tons of, of 1980s movies that remade the 1950s. And... uh they all have this kind of 1980s attitude in these films where, you know, the women are loose and the guys are, uh, you know, they're, they're just every, every guy is cool and every chick puts out type, type attitude when it's probably not really the case. But m the majority of those films is that's kind of what's projected as the 1950s was like. And um, I would say that uh, in in the what you were talking about with uh, the future being used as a vehicle, um, that's absolutely correct. You can talk about certain things in in the present tense and put them in a future setting, um, but if you were to put them in, in in a present tense setting, there's certain things about um, someone reading that that wouldn't uh, it might make them uncomfortable. And the other thing is, if you wanted to kind of uh, get out some sort of truth, just because the way we've all been programmed. So let's just say, for instance, you wanted to write a book about how um, all these mass shootings are hoaxes, right? If you wrote a book and you pointed out that actual events that occurred right now were hoaxes, and you wrote a book about it, it would be put off in the conspiracy theorist section but if you put it novelized into a futuristic form it would be a sci-fi hit that would be a New York Times bestseller <laughs> well it's similar to how you, it's a lot easier to get people to criticise certain characteristics of other people even if they have the exact same characteristic it's much easier to get people to criticise other people for that characteristic than themselves and so if you set a story in the future you can make criticisms of modern day society that don't get people offside because they don't read it as a criticism of today. They don't internalise it as a criticism of them because most people can't stand being criticised in any way. They can't handle it. They get defensive, their minds shut down, that's it. So if you set the exact same criticisms of humans in the future, you're now removing their identification with the criticism. So now when you talk about, say, the destruction of language, George Orwell wrote about how language is being destroyed. If you do that in a future sense, it's a lot easier for the reader, especially the simpler minds in the readers, to go, oh, yeah, if there was a totalitarian dictatorship in the future that was destroying our language, that would be bad. It's a lot easier for them to open their minds to that than to point out to them, well, what do you think all of this gender pronoun stuff is exactly? If that's not a destruction of language, what do you think that is? Now you're more likely to get people offside because this might be something they've already bought into. So you set it in a far-removed place, a far-removed time, but you make the exact same criticisms. And so for one example, 
George Orwell writes in that book about fake missiles, right? There's a scene where Julia says to Winston, have you ever considered the possibility that those rocket attacks are fake? And then Winston replies, I haven't really thought about it. Like, he hadn't really thought about it until she questioned him on it. And, of course, to this day, what is this now, 70 years after that book was published, we have fake rocket attacks. In fact, fake rocket attacks are still a key element of the narrative that we're given about all the boogeymen, right? Whether it's Kim Jong-un or Mahmoud Ahmadinejad or any of these clowns, it's these rockets which are a key element of the narrative. So even if Orwell or whoever wrote that book didn't really know the future, it seems as though a lot of what they were writing about is just as relevant today as it was seven years ago. Uh, yeah, in that in that regard, that would uh, what you're talking about would uh, line up with the, the uh, Mark Twain, the the quote that is attributed to Mark Twain when he said, uh, "It's easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled." Um, the the part about the rocket attacks, when in uh, which you're referring to uh, from 1984, where uh, Julius is uh, speaking to Orwell. Um, and he, yes, he does say, I've never really thought about it. Um, he was a BBC propagandist. He, he is speaking particularly about things that he actually did. Okay. So there were fake, there were things that they were faking in the news, in the BBC back during his day in World War One. And he he was actually part of that op, that operation. He was an intelligence officer, for lack of a better word, okay, which he was doing what actual intelligence officers do, working in the media. Um, so uh, he he came from a family of intelligence officers, for uh, lack of a better word. And um, so he's yeah he's basically telling you in that book. When, when it comes to rocket attacks or any of that type of stuff, like like uh, I was saying or you were saying, human nature never changes, but um, the way to fool people never really changes either. So yeah, they were faking stuff back in the time of World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, um, all that all that stuff. And, yeah, well, in the story, uh, Winston is he works for the Ministry of Truth. It's his job to change the past. That's actually, in the story, Winston's job is to change the past, and yet even he hadn't really thought about a possibility that the rockets themselves were fake, right? It's compartmentalized. His job is if someone is, is dead now, if they're an unperson, whatever it's called, his job is to find the old newspaper articles and scrub them. And yet yeah. even he, as someone who was part of the deception, hadn't considered the possibility that the rocket attacks were fake until Julia asked him. So okay. I wonder if that was also Orwell trying to... And again, I'm using Orwell in loose sense, um, presupposing that this book was written by one person or that Eric Blair yeah. was a guy who did it, because I'm very open-minded to other possibilities. But just using Orwell as the author, I'm, I'm suggesting that maybe or, uh, Orwell was suggesting things are so compartmentalised that you'll get people who think they know what's going on, but even they haven't really questioned things. Such is human no. nature. And I think a lot no. of us, when we start learning about media fakery and all these things, we don't, it doesn't become an exponential growth. We actually stagnate. And then when someone like me comes along and says, guys, V2 rockets, go and look at them. They're obviously fake. Come on. Right? And if they're fake, ipso facto, the entire war was fake. Ipso facto, war is fake. 
To me, that's a very simple logical progression, but it's too much. Because a lot of people, they've learned about the media fakery. They're like George Orwell discovering the media fakery, or Winston discovering the media fakery. But the idea that the fakery goes well beyond what's in the news, that's a little bit too far. Well, the good thing about this is, is you actually answered one of the questions you started off our conversation with yourself. Which one was that? When we, when we started off the conversation, you were asking if the people in the intelligence agencies, if it was necessary for them to be well-versed in hoaxes and media fakery uh, in order to maintain their job, did, would they have to take courses in that type of stuff? But in the example of George Orwell... If you like this audio and want to support the site in a small or big way, please hit the PayPal donate button on the side of the fakeologist.com webpage. You can show your support for as little as $1.19 a month by subscription or one-time donation. Thank you for your support. I'm not really sure this does answer the question, though, because in the case of, say, Winston working for the Ministry of Truth, his job is to scrub the newspapers, but he hasn't considered that the rockets themselves are fake. If you were to assign someone, suppose there was this agency spying on people, and you were to assign them to study John Le Bon, for argument's sake, or any of us who talk about dinosaur fakery, that person would either have to be trained in the dino fakery before they started their spying, or they'd have to learn it from me. You know what I mean? It's like, we're, we're assigning you to go and study uh, John Le Bon. He's your target or he's your subject or whatever. If that person doesn't already know about dinosaurs, they're only going to have to listen to me for a couple of hours or watch a couple of my videos before they realize, holy crap, dinosaurs are obviously fake. So you'd need to train them in everything before you could let them loose on someone like me. Whereas in Winston's case, it was compartmentalized because he was only working in the Ministry of Truth scrubbing newspapers. It took for Julia to question the rockets or Winston to question them. So, I, so I'm not really sure I've answered my own question because I'm still wondering here. My question still remains. How could you have paid shills or whatever these people believe exist, uh, infiltrators or operatives, whatever, how could you send them to spy on people like us or people like me? How could you do it? They would have to know everything before they got here, wouldn't they? Which, which, which well, I'm open-minded. I mean, it's possible. It's possible they could do that, but I just well, I don't see I, I, well, I, I don't think so personally. But what I do, the only thing I've ever really encountered as far as like um, what people think of as paid shills or whatever that is, is that um, it's just people who are disruptive and try to spin the conversation off into a different direction. So it would be like if you and I are having this kind of linear conversation even though we're touching on different subjects it would be like if someone came on the audio with us and they said they started talking about like constitutional rights or um like white nationalism that would be someone who i would think would be suspicious like somebody who disrupts a conversation that we're having and spins it off into a different direction with no rhyme or reason whatsoever that's actually happened to chris and i uh, on the hoaxbusters calls when they're uh, live. So, um, the, but as far as people like, you know, particularly spying on 
things that I do or websites or anything, I don't particularly think I'm, I'm of any interest to anybody. Well, I agree with you. I don't think that you or me or anyone at our level is any threat to the establishment whatsoever. And I think that that's what actually is the psychological drive for a lot of people to want to believe in this Paige Shills meme is because, hey, if the, if the establishment is spying on us, it proves that we're onto something. Yeah, we're a threat to them. So this validates my use of time. This validates the three hours I spend every day watching YouTube videos. You know what I mean? This, we're a threat to them. It gives them a sense of validation. And I'm not saying that this is happening on a conscious level necessarily, but I think there is an element, whether it's subconscious or call whatever you want, where there's this idea of we have an enemy, it's whoever runs a show, and the fact that they're spying on us is proof that we're a threat to them. So this is a fact they want to believe in. And what I'm suggesting is maybe it's not a fact. Maybe they don't care. In fact, I'm going even further. I'm saying if we are in a time of revelation, if we are in a time of apocalypse, if we are in a time of the unveiling, and people like me who come along and say, hey, guys, did you? I've read some of their books. Look what I found in their books. This is ridiculous. Then I'm actually helping the revelation. I'm helping to reveal the truth. If, if what I'm saying is true, and I believe it is, then I'm actually helping in the very revelation. So not only am I not a threat, if anything, I might be helping exactly what's going on. And so might every single person who is stumbling upon the truth and sharing it with others. They are partaking in this revelation. Um, yeah, there's that's that's definitely one way to look at it. There are definitely people who've written entire books uh, from that kind of perspective, from a perspective I wouldn't agree with, um, maybe not even one you would agree with, but um, whatever, yeah, the idea that Whatever this information is, is a, a revealing process, and just by you getting the information would then be part of the revealing process, and, and so on and so forth. Um, to to a certain extent, I would agree with that, um, and then also I would just add that I would not be one of those people who is out to, you know, you know fight the globalists, John. That's what we got to do. We got to fight these globalists, and we got to take them down. Because if we can get back to 1776 worldwide, we would uh, take the republic back and, you know, take it to the stars, that type of stuff. Um, I would just say the only, you know, the, the interesting thing about finding out a lot of this information is that there are people out there, and, you know, you've, you've obviously experienced this as well as I, is there are people out there who want to hear it, who who are who want to understand certain things, and for whatever reason, they don't always have access to the information offhand. Maybe um, they don't have the drive to go and look at certain things in, in books or to go look at that information, or they don't even have the drive or the um, the self confidence to do an audio chat like you and I are doing. And so they like to hear the information. They like uh, to take things that you or I have said and apply them, apply that information in some way that's useful to their life. And for me, that's a good, that's a good thing. And it's, and I must admit it's purely selfish because I actually want there to be other people who think like me. Yeah, I completely agree with you, and I'm glad that you say that, because a lot of people, they seem to have this self-righteous notion in their mind that, oh, I'm not doing this for me, I'm doing this for other people. I'm trying to save the world or whatever. But I know, really, we're the ones who benefit from it. 
or at least we like to think that we are. I like to think that because I believe less myths, I'm better off now. I mean, the, the nuclear bomb one is a good example. I got into that zero hedge, doom porn mindset back in 20, might have been 2013. Can't really remember. Mm-hmm. But I got into this mindset of genuinely thinking, ooh, we could be on the verge of World War Three, right? That's not a healthy mindset. So by getting rid of this belief in nuclear bombs, I'm better off, right? And I like to think it's the same with all these other myths that I'm helping myself and hopefully helping others to see through, right? And it's, like you said, it's a selfish thing. It's a selfish thing. Yeah. Well, I have to confess, you're older and wiser than me, so whenever you found out about the media fakery, maybe you already understood there's no changing the system, whereas I didn't. I was still younger and more naive. And so I did believe, well... There's this rising truth movement. I'm going to try and be part of it. I'm going to try and help it. You know, I did buy into that idea, at least to an extent. And it's only been through experience, some of it bitter experience, that I've come to realize there's no this, there's no so-called truth movement for a start. But even if there was, most of the people who are in it, I would want nothing to do. These are not good people, most of them. They're not fixing anything. A lot of the people I've met through this scene, they're very angry, bitter people. They're like crabs in a bucket. I don't want those people in charge of anything. I'd rather the people who are currently in charge than those people, quite seriously. You know, anyone who gets angry or defensive right. about someone challenging their opinions, that's not someone who I would want in charge of the world. Like, hypothetically, if you could replace the people who are in charge, a lot of the people putting themselves forward, so I wouldn't want them in charge. No way. Look, look how emotionally damaged a lot of these people are. They're very angry, bitter people. They are seeking out enemies. They will make an enemy of you just to have another enemy on the books, right? This is how they live their lives. Why would I want those people in charge of the world? No way. If we have to have someone in charge, the people currently in charge, they're leaving me alone. They're leaving me in peace. They're not making any problems for me. Whereas a lot of these so-called truthers, they'll go out of their way to make problems for you, won't they? But I didn't know that at the time, you see. I didn't know that at the time. I had to learn this the hard way. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people do try to make trouble, and um, I well, I don't want anybody to be in charge of me currently. Um, I've got a I got enough tr- trouble trying to be in charge of uh, everything in my own house. So, and I don't want to be the boss of anybody either. So that that's you know, maybe maybe in a job setting you need a boss and you need a guide and you need somebody to help help you learn how to understand. But as far as like trying to boss around my neighbors or you know, boss you around or anybody else around. I have no desire to. Do so, the um, yeah, I think um, I I totally agree with you. When you get out of that fear porn mindset, um, it is a relief. And thankfully, uh, you know, uh, some of the earlier calls with uh, you know, Tim and uh, Chris Kendall and uh, uh, Marcus Allen and some of those guys who were on the earlier calls. Uh, they really kind of instilled that idea. It's like, um, it's like, uh, oh, 9-11's fake, Sandy Hook's fake, nukes are fake. This is great. This means we don't have to worry about this stuff being real because it's not real. The terror, the terror is fake. All that stuff's fake. It means I can go to the airport, take a flight, and I'm not worried about that some terrorist is going to bomb it because it's not real. And uh, that's a that's a load off your uh, mind, especially if you know, um, like I said, someone like myself in like 2004 or five or six, uh, you're you know scared of that type of stuff. And yeah, I, I was, yeah. I was, I was for a little bit, absolutely. 
So this is where I think my current perspective, which could be wrong, I could very well be wrong here, but my current perspective, I feel like it takes, you know, this um, peace that comes from knowing about media fakery, okay? Don't mourn for those children who were dead at Sandy Hook. Nobody died, nobody got hurt, right? I feel like my perspective is taking this to another level where it's saying not only did no children die or get hurt, but the people in charge might not even be evil or nefarious. They might have a plan that they believe in, that they're happy to share with anybody who's happy to study. You're not going to stop it, so you best make peace with it and understand that at least from their perspective, this is good for humanity. Aldous Huxley, caste system, the epsilons are going to have to do menial work. A society needs menial workers. Do you want them to be smart and wondering every day, why am I here? I'm a creative person. Why am I building cars? I'm a creative person, and in this car production line, all I do is menial tasks. I deserve better. Do you want them going through that existential agony, or do you want them dumb as rocks? No disrespect to the car workers. I'm just using that as an example. I'm sure there are many intelligent car workers, but think of a menial task. Wouldn't it be better if those menial workers were dumb as rocks, and they truly were happy with their lot in life? Because I think that's what Aldous Huxley is arguing for. I think that's what these people believe, that this is actually good what they're doing. So even if you don't agree with it, at least understand that from these people's perspective, they think they're doing the right thing. And maybe you've got nothing to fear from them. Maybe you have nothing to fear from these people whatsoever. Nothing at all. They're not coming to get you. They're not spying on you. They're not infiltrating you. They're not scared of you at all. They've got no reason to be scared of you. And you've got no reason to be scared of them. Well, I must admit the first time I heard you say that, um, it did put me off a little bit. Um, I'm just being honest with you, so I'm not trying to uh, debate you or get in an argument with you, um, which the first time I heard you say that was quite a while ago. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I was put off by those statements, but then um, I've heard you say it a couple of times, and even the way you phrased it right now in particularly, um, I think I understand what you're saying because um, from my perspective, at least uh, my perception, of the way that you the way that you speak is you say is you say something and to to people it sounds fairly you know especially like in the circles we we run it sounds fairly provocative um but the way that i just heard what you were saying there is that um in someone like aldous huxley he you know um he's an elitist he's 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 an asshole basically but he believes that what he is doing is good, right? So I don't necessarily I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I don't think that um, Hillary Clinton or or you know David Rockefeller that they actually s- sat around tables like you know you see in a movie where you know the evil people are sitting around plotting to you know do bad things they actually think and believe that what they're doing is good even though i don't think what they're doing is good personally so yeah i'm aware of that idea that that these people definitely believe that they might be doing you and me a favor or whoever they might be doing the you know the bean the bean counter favor by making him love his servitude as huxley said um so yeah, I'm I'm aware of that perspective. They they think okay, well there's these people out there, and you know if they're so stupid enough that they would uh, do exactly what we kind of dish out for them, then they probably would just be much happier doing drugs and doing menial tasks. So why not just create 
manufacture a world for people like that. Um, the only thing uh, I, w I would tend to stray from that idea is, is because if you look at the evolution theory that they bring along with them, there's a, to a certain extent, they are cognitively aware of the fact that they are purposely dumbing people down and purposely making people sick because they believe that makes them stronger in the evolutionary uh, in, in the evolutionary strive for greatness. So evolution in their mind is not only something that is happening naturally, but it's also something that is a will to power. And so if you can make someone like myself or yourself or whoever wh whoever else is not part of their group, if you can dumb them down or weaken them along the way, then it's survival of the fittest. But it's manufactured survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest doesn't actually exist in nature. And if if you and I are going to be happy with our smartphones or, you know, some, I've heard you talk about, and you and I have actually talked about this on a private call, is that, you know the technology uh, might might you know be useful for some things like like you said you you find usefulness with some of the technology that's uh, given to us. Um, most people are not using the technology for the possibilities of you know what it is. I, I guarantee that there's people out there who have smartphones and they're not even using the smartphone to the full capacity that it could be used for. They're basically using you know two or three apps on it. And most of them have to do with social media. So, um, and they're kind of programmed to be that way. And um, you could either take uh, maybe uh, your kind, of, your kind of perspective on that. And like I said, I, I tend to differ with you a little bit on on your perspective in that regard, um, in a friendly way, though. I understand. I understand. Like you said, the first time people hear these ideas, it can be very confronting because if there's one thing that we all agree on, it's that the people in charge are bad. That's like the one thing that draws so many people together, whether it's the people who care about media fakery or about the evil pedophile rings or about the Jews or about, you know, what I call white dilution or any of these topics. We all seem to disagree on so many things except for one. The people at the top are evil. They're our enemies. They're bad. And so when you hear someone like me say, well, maybe they are, but then again, maybe they're good. Maybe these are the good guys. They're giving us this technology. I'm having this conversation with you right now because of their technology. If it wasn't for their technology, whoever's listening to this right now, you never would have heard my voice. You never would have heard John Adams' voice or Jay Dyer's voice. We got this technology from them. Maybe they're actually the best friends you could possibly want. That's very, I mean, that's, that's going to trigger a lot of people straight up. It's like, no, this is the one thing you cannot challenge. They're evil. That's the one thing we all agree on here. And it's like, well, okay, people can have that. I'm not going to try and change their mind. But that's the kind of mindset I used to have. And I no longer have that mindset, and I feel much more at peace. Similar to how when I learned that no one died at Sandy Hook, I felt better. When I learned that nuclear bombs are fake, I felt better. And now, in my opinion, that I've discovered that the us first, them, they are evil mentality is also nonsense, I feel better again. I feel like I've got nothing to fear from them. And they're not forcing me to eat bad foods. They're not forcing me to drink too much alcohol on St. Patrick's Day. If I do those things, that's 100% my responsibility and since I've taken responsibility, I've been more responsible. And I think if we allow ourselves to have boogeymen in our minds, oh, it's the boogeyman's fault, they're the ones doing this, then we're absolving ourselves of responsibility and probably making worse choices in life. Look at around the average truther, the average truth people, how many of them are truly healthy? 
how many of them are truly improving their lives? Not, oh, yeah, of course I am. I, I know all this stuff. No, I mean, seriously, how many people are fitter and stronger and healthier and more at peace than they were when they started getting into this? In my experience, it's a tiny, tiny minority, if we're being completely honest. So by having this boogeyman, it allows them to absolve responsibility, which leads to worse outcomes in life. But they're not being forced to do anything bad. Even this vaccinations topic, here in Australia, no one's forced to vaccinate their children, right? People do that voluntarily. Now, you can say, oh, but they're coercing us with money. If you're going to put money ahead of the child, then who's that on? I say that's on you. You're meant to be the parent. If you come back and say, no, no, that's the responsibility of the people who run the show, okay, fine, just admit that they're your master. Let's, let's get that fact clear right from the start then. If you are responsible for yourself, you've got complete control. And they're helping you. They're giving you tools to learn about the world. Even something like the Internet Archive, we, we seem to just look past how incredible that is. I can, John Adams can say to me, there's a book, you know, it's in the rare books collection of Cambridge University. Here's a link. You can just go and read the PDF. I don't have to go to England to read this book. I can read it right now. Anyone can. That's truly phenomenal technology. This is truly an unveiling that we are witnessing. And the people who are doing it, we want to spend our time just blaming them for our problems and, uh, and being negative about the world. I look back at that mindset and I think, man, that was crazy. That was a crazy mindset that I had. So I don't, but I, I also remember how convinced I was at the time. And I also remember how if someone had to put forward what I'm putting forward now, two years ago, I would have accused them of working for the bad guys, right? Such was my conditioning. So like, I wouldn't blame anyone listening to this for assuming nefarious intent on my part. All I would say in reply is just give it a try. Just, just spend a few moments just imagining what if they're not bad and see how you feel. You might find that you feel a lot better. You might find that you feel a lot better. And then you might find yourself asking, what is my evidence that they're evil? And if you're being honest, you might realize all of the things you want to blame on them is actually what we're doing to ourselves. Just my opinion. I could be wrong. Maybe they are evil. I don't know. But I don't think so. Well, well regardless uh, whether one thinks they are or they aren't, one thing you are correct about it is we definitely do have a have a certain amount of choice, not a, not 100% choice, but a certain amount of choice to be able to better our lives ourselves, take control of, of our own free will that we, that we do have. That is one thing um, I think we can definitely agree that every person possesses um, a certain amount of free will to be able to decide if they're going to um, engage in, like you said, you don't have to, uh, you know, ruin yourself every day or on St. Patrick's Day or whatever it is, or um, you know, think think all these bad thoughts about this type of stuff. I I, I differ with you in that regard. I, I do I do think these are bad people, but I've never met David Rockefeller personally. Um, obviously, he's allegedly dead now, so I won't. And he's never come and personally done something to me in in that regard. So he didn't really affect my life in that regard. Um, whereas being able to be a culture manipulator and a cultural steerer in, in a you know world built on mass media, yes, he probably did affect my life in that regard. But as as a day to day personal decision, you know, my my wife, I I love her very much. She she's good at she was very good at one time kind of getting me back on track where um, 
I would uh, like like you were saying in an earlier time period where um, where you start to let this type of stuff that that we discuss over here kind of affect your day to day life, and it's like it's like no this this type of stuff doesn't have to do with taking out the trash and getting the bills paid, right? So you can analyze this information, you can kind of go through it and help it to help you to make better decisions. And look, and not look at it from a negative perspective, like you were saying, John. Um, look at it from a positive perspective. That's definitely true. Um, and just realize that the information that you're looking at doesn't necessarily have to have an effect on your day-to-day life. In the regard that, like I said, Lord Rothschild's not going to be uh, showing up at my house to serve me some, you know, serve me a gas bill anytime soon. Yeah, I can relate to that. You were fortunate that you had your partner to sort of keep you grounded in a way and I feel lucky that I've met a couple of people who were open to some of this so-called conspiracy stuff but these were guys who were in the system they had jobs they had careers they had they had wives and you know they were able to point out to me that hey man none of this is going to matter to most people right even if it's true even if everything you're saying is true even if no one's dying or getting hurt most people don't care and this was at a time when I was still in this mindset of, no, everybody has to know this. Everybody has to care. And so I had people in my life to keep me grounded as well. And I think we do mix with a lot of people. Maybe they're not as grounded as they could be, and this does affect them in a negative way day to day. And that's not healthy. It's not healthy for them. You know, like, so I'll give you an example. Say this chemtrails nonsense. If somebody buys into the idea that they are spraying the skies then if you've looked into the power of placebo and the power of nocebo, these phenomenon whereby somebody's uh, interpretation, their mental concept of the consequences of doing something does seem to manifest in how they really feel in the real world, then somebody who believes they're being sprayed like a bug, they're probably going to be less healthy mentally and potentially physically as well. This is the power of placebo and nocebo. So if you're going around believing other people, oh, we're being sprayed with chemtrails, whatever, I would argue you're actually harming people. And I'll take it further. If you're trying to convince people that the people in charge are in control of you, they're the ones responsible for you vaccinating your child. They're the ones responsible for you eating bad food and they're evil. Same thing. You are actually poisoning that person's mind. That's now my opinion. If we're going to go around telling people this stuff, we're actually poisoning people's minds. And that's what I think had been done to me. And I think I partook in it. This, this uh, mindset of negativity and victim mentality. Whereas now I'm saying to people, you know what? I've come around on this. Maybe they're not evil and maybe this world is not so bad. And even some of the changes, they might, they might go against some of what we hold as ideals. But perhaps that's because we haven't spent time wondering where those ideals came from in the first place. Maybe we shouldn't see all this as negative. And maybe, and I keep using the word maybe, not in a rhetorical and being quite serious. Maybe. Can we open our minds to these possibilities? We like to tell ourselves that we're open-minded, right? But are we really? Let's judge ourselves on our, on our thought patterns. Are we open to the possibility that maybe the people in charge are not evil after all? That's what I'm trying to share with people. But get this, John. I've yeah. got to go, man. I've really enjoyed this chat, but I've got to get going. It's 4.30 here, and it's my day off, and I haven't gone for my exercise yet. And I have to try and get at least a bit of sun every day. I've found that sunlight, as crazy as it sounds... If I get sort of 30 or 40 minutes of sunlight, I feel better. I feel happier, right? And you might say, well, of course, you get vitamins and whatever. Sure. But look how people lead their lives. 
They're inside uh, air-conditioned, artificially lit rooms during the best sunlight hours, and a lot of them wonder why they're so unhappy. Maybe it's because we're not getting enough sunlight. Truly, we had a couple of weeks of bad weather, right? It was just overcast. For almost two weeks straight, I just felt less happy, right? The sun came back. Man, one day in the sun, and uh, I felt on top of the world again. Yeah? Oh, but the only problem like, is, I've got to get going. Yeah, it does. It sounds like I've lost my mind, you know? What, the sun? The sun gives you energy? The sun gives you happiness and health and vitality? Get out of here. It's a ball of gas in the sky. It's made of helium and hydrogen going through fusion. How could that possibly be beneficial for you? And if they believe that, you know, there's nothing you can do. You know, it's funny, actually. It's a nice little tie-in because... If there's one thing we can agree that is evil, it's the sun. Well, it supposedly gives people cancer, right? That's that's what right. it, that's the funny thing, right? People are now being yeah. convinced that the sun is their enemy, so you've got to slap a whole ton of chemicals on your body to uh, to be to be healthy. That's how you yeah, be healthy. You from it. Yeah, if if you if you tread into that sunlight, you'd better put some bloody chemicals on your skin, son, because if you don't, it could give you cancer, right? You know, you know, you know what the the best part about that is is actually you. Or anybody else on that continent is proof that one that humans are adaptable, and two that the sun is not bad for you. Because take a whole bunch of people who came from an, uh, a part of the world where you could, you know, technically, for lack of a better word, say they were epi- epigenetically inclined to cloudy weather, and you put them in the environment of the sun, and you guys seem to have adapted okay. And progenerated. So. Well, it's it's funny we should finish on that note because you know the official story of how white men got here is that back in the late 1700s, Britain's um, uh, prisons were overcrowded. Britain's Britain's prisons were overcrowded because they used to imprison people for stealing bread. But they came up with a solution. They decided to send a whole bunch of ships full of these convicts to a foreign land. Right? The trip took nine months. You couldn't just send the convicts by themselves. You had to put a whole bunch of um, basically military personnel with them. So a whole bunch of military personnel apparently just volunteered to take a one-way ticket to a foreign land with a bunch of convicts. And that is how the first fleet came about. And that's how Australia came about. And remember, this was in the time of single-shot muskets. There was no machine guns back in these days, right? So one man with a gun was effective at controlling... A small group of people, but that was about it. Now, how many, how many men with those single-shot guns would you want to have on a ship full of convicts who don't want to be there? Think about this logically. Or, suppose you're going to create a whole new colony. Would you send your convicts? Would you send the worst of your people? Does that make sense? Nine months these people spent on ships. That's the official story of how white men got to Australia. And I used to believe that. I used to fully believe that completely and utter nonsense. You know, they can't even tell you how many they sent, right? This is only 250 years ago. They can't even tell you how many they sent. What? What do you mean you can't tell me how many they sent? Did they, did they not keep the records at the time, or have we since lost the records? Because either way, if that's how unreliable the authorities were 250 years ago, why would I believe a single word about what happened prior to that point? It doesn't make well, sense. It doesn't make sense either because, uh, you know, allegedly there was... Prior to that, there was uh, there was apt bookkeeping, you know, the do- the Domesday book, right? But yet, if if you know uh, what uh, 
couple of years later, they couldn't they couldn't do that. Uh, they couldn't keep app records. You know, I will have to uh, let you go as well, uh, John. Is it, it's been nice talking to you. I hear my son crying. So, well, just before you get going, just let me say I should have said this at the start of the call. I apologize. A couple of months ago, in the live chat. I said something disrespectful about you for no good reason, and that was foolish of me, and I apologise for that. And oh. um, I try to be better than that. Like, it wasn't anything serious. I just said that that particular chat you, you were in was boring, but it's like, well, there was no need for me to say that. Like, even if I felt that way, it was just just a stupid thing to do. So I apologise for that. And, um, okay. yeah, it's cool that you're, that you, that you're not too, too fussed about it, but sometimes I look at my own behaviour and I think, well, you know, sometimes I just do stupid things. There's no need for it, you know? And I've got enough people being disrespectful to me for no reason, completely unprovoked. I should know better than to do that. So I apologize. Uh, apology accepted. It's okay. No, no worries. No worries. It's all Excellent. Uh, Excellent. Well, man, I've enjoyed this chat so much. And, um, yeah, I'll probably re-upload it to my channel as well. So John Adams of Hoaxcasters Call does a, what, a weekly call with, um, don't tell me, Chris Kendall. Chris Kendall's back. Hoaxcasters Call. They took you down, but she's a back. And uh, I'll put a link to, to your website. In the cool. uh, in the show notes of whatever I upload as well, and yeah, go and check it out. Hostbusterscall dot com is that right? Hostbusterscall dot com. Yes, sir. Yes. Fantastic. Well, man, good luck. Um, yeah, enjoy the rest of your evening, and uh, thanks again for the call. And uh, hopefully, we can speak again soon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, John. I appreciate it. All right. Cheers, man. Right, cheers. This is the Elite, the Elite from Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening to Fakeologist Radio on Fakeologist well, certainly a fascinating call. Thanks again to John for being part of it. And I sit here a week or so after that call was recorded and broadcast at fakeologist.com. And still I find myself wondering about this text, 1984, George Orwell. I was a little bit surprised to hear John say that he didn't feel it was particularly relevant to our time today, I maintain the position that it is as relevant as ever, both in terms of the practical or the real-world things that George Orwell was talking about, the fake dinosaurs and the fake heliocentrism, but also in terms of the philosophical concepts, this idea of what is the truth? Is there truth without human observation? And I think this is one of the main things that Orwell was getting at with 1984, getting us to explore this idea of, is there truth independent of human experience? Because most people today do believe that there is an absolute or an objective truth that was here before humans. And to me, when I read 1984, I see an exploration of this idea that maybe there was no truth before humans. Maybe there was no universe as we know it before humans. Why are we so confident that there was. We're all familiar with this idea that if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? And some people say yes. You don't need observation for there to be a sound made. Other people say no. If no one's there to hear the sound, how can there be a sound to begin with? And that's really what this question comes down to. But it's not as simple as, well, I believe this or I believe that. I think what Orwell is trying to do, and probably what that question about the tree falling in the woods is trying to do, is to get us to explore in our own minds not just what we believe but why and what would be the consequences if we were to take a different consideration or a different idea having thought about that question. These are questions of epistemology. These are questions of metaphysics and ontology and when you use words that end with ology 
It makes them sound so uh, so serious and so academic. But uh, they're actually ideas that any thinking person can get their head around. And these are the kinds of questions that we like to talk about on the member Skype calls at johnlebon.com. And these take part on a weekly basis, usually on a Sunday Australia time, which is a Saturday night American time. And it's only for the members of johnlebon.com. And we discuss all kinds of things, oftentimes delving into the existential, the epistemological, the ontological these sorts of things. And so if you're somebody who likes to discuss books like 1984, you like to discuss the nuke hoax or the war hoax or what it is that we're trying to do when we talk about these things, if you like to think about thinking, if you like to think about the meta concepts, there's really only one place for you to be, and that is at johnlebon.com. So what I recommend you do, if you haven't already, is go and check it out for yourself and ask yourself where in life... Do you expect to get the best while paying nothing? Where do you expect that in life? Where, please tell me, guys. I'm all this. Where in your life do you get the best material for nothing, the best products or the best services? Where are they offered at no cost? I'm not aware of any such place. JohnLeBond.com is a little bit more expensive than other outlets in this realm, but there's a good reason for that. And if you take the plunge and check it out for just a month, I think you'll see that for yourself. There is serious discussion. There is a genuine inquiry into this realm in which we live, and that's what I'm doing at that website, and that's what the other people are doing as well. And then there are places where people are just sitting around chatting for the sake of chatting and achieving not very much. And only you get to decide which of those two you prefer and where it is that you truly belong. But I want to leave it there for now. So on the 29th of March, 2018, once again, a big thanks to John Adams of HoaxBastersCall.com. A big thanks to Ab of Fakeologist. Com, where you can take part in the Discord server and chat to your heart's content about anything. And once again, a big thanks to all the members of JohnLeBond.com who make it possible for me to put the time and effort that I do into what I'm doing. So that's it. Special guest, John Adams, originally recorded March 20, and uh, this little preface and postscript recorded March 29 of 2018. Until next time, you guys, take care of yourselves. <laughs>